Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that sees no irony in Gary Neville calling Manchester United players a bunch of whinge bags. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam, and a very Merry Christmas to all of our listeners. The fixtures are coming thick and fast across the winter period, and so we've got a lot talked about, not just on the pitch, but also in terms of transfers with the transfer window starting to open up. But let's start with what you've just touched on there, which is uh, Manchester United struggles. It's interesting, yeah. Manchester United are obviously always a hot topic because they've always got a bit of drama going on. They do like to make headlines, you know, these days less so much for sort of winning titles and more for sort of winning drama prizes and that sort of thing. But there's a big story going on. We obviously talked when Ralph Rangnick took over and how the big sort of, oh, he's the godfather of Gagan pressing and all this. But the start of the Rangnick era has not been that grand um you know they've had a series of pretty disappointing or not necessarily disappointing but sort of uninspiring results they've had a 1-0 win over Palace a 1-1 draw with Young Boys a 1-0 win over Norwich and now a 1-1 draw with Newcastle it's not exactly you know stunning reading if you're looking at that match fixture calendar you're not you're not going oh wow they're really they're really dominating in this in this new period yeah if Um, if I'm Ralph and I'm writing home I'm not it's not going to be an exciting letter I'm not going to be like you know everything's going great here in Manchester it's it's not fantastic, especially when you think about the nature of some of these games. For example, the 1-0 win over Norwich. A, a lot of people are saying that United were maybe lucky to get all three points. Against Newcastle, there was definitely a point in that game where, yes, on a different day, United could have won it. But also there was a point where Alisson Maximan sort of completely bungled um, a very, basically an open goal if he side to the left of himself and hit it straight into the keeper. Um, so to perform like that against those two teams. And Palace have been pretty good in spells this season, so a 1-0 win over them isn't, you know, terrible. But a 1-1 draw with New Boys and then a narrow win over Norwich and a 1-1 draw with Newcastle, probably the two worst teams in the league right now. Not how you would want to start things off. And a big part of why that's happened and a big part of the conversation surrounding Ralph Rangnick that we've had and that everyone's been having is looking at this new system, the 4-2-2-2. And a lot of people, when that sort of came across their phones or laptops or, or newspapers, sort of struggled to get their head around the concept of what a 4-2-2-2 works like. And Not us. So, we, we were quite happens, excited about it, I'm ashamed to admit. Well, well, you know, so as it happens, it wasn't just the uh, the average punter and the average viewer that was a bit confused by the four two two two, but also apparently the United players themselves who seem <laughs> really confused trying to play the system. Give us Manchester United kits and let us take to Old Trafford, and we'll, we'll run the system. We know it. We get it. <laughs> well, may- maybe there's just like a disconnect. I mean, maybe maybe this is one of those things where Ralph Ryan has been playing this for. Um, I think that we can go into reasons as to why it may not have worked out yet it is four games in so it may just be a case of their need to sort of get times to get to grips with it but the Premier League comes hard and fast and if you're dropping points against Newcastle you know that alone as we've seen in seasons past could be the difference between European football or Champions League football or not so you kind of one of the important jobs you have as a manager even if you're a new manager coming in is to try and get your players to understand the fundamentals of what you want to do as soon as possible but there's a lot of reasons as to why they might not have and I I do wonder is it maybe the case that sort of Ralph Rangnick is I think you sort of referenced um, Mike Bassett England manager the other day is it maybe the case that he's sort of used to playing in sort of European leagues where maybe there's sort of a more general acceptance on like tactical fluidity and playing all these different styles whereas here you know (laughs) Conte came in and played a back three and everyone's like ooh ah and Pep Guardiola's come in and played like a formation with five midfielders and everyone's like oh wow and so Ralph Rangnick's come in and played 4-2-2-2 and everyone's like what's going on here what's going on here <laughs> or the back like this, this, this ain't new <laughs> whereas in like Austria and Germany maybe that's sort of like a concept that they're more easily adaptable to yeah so this is interesting I've got a um I've got a couple of questions that I thought I'd just fire off at you to to get your opinion I think I think that I've got three lined up that are gonna kind of give a pretty good comprehensive overall approach as to to what is going on at at Manchester United and we'll start with the first one which um, I put to you you know we kind of maybe fell into this trap a little bit when Ralph Rangnick was appointed because we talked about his history as a manager his profile within the sport um, and did we and indeed a lot of people do you think uh, did we get swept up by this idea of narrative did we fall in love with the guy before he even got here and when in reality you know yes he's got a good cv but also no one really wanted him 
he did come out of sort of nowhere, didn't he? He's he's a manager that often gets sort of like touted as like the fourth favourite for a lot of jobs. I feel like he's been linked to the Arsenal job in the past and the Spurs job in the past and probably the Everton job in some capacity, but is never actually at the front of things. And he sort of definitely came out of nowhere. United for ages, obviously the number one choice they wanted was Antonio Conte, who got nicked from under their noses by, by Spurs. But the Rangnick appointment did definitely come out of nowhere. And it's it's something that is interesting because one of the things that people have been looking at, and I think you can look at Maybe if the four two 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 doesn't suit the players, part of that could be laid at Ralph Rangnick's door and go, okay, well, listen, pal, maybe it's time to sort of get a new idea. And again, they're four games in. There's nothing to say that they won't revert to like a three one four two like they had earlier the season that they had some success with, or some other formation entirely. But at the same time, if part of that blame goes to Ralph Rangnick for bringing in a system that doesn't suit the players, part of that also goes to the you know staff that run Manchester United for bringing in a manager who doesn't necessarily suit the players that they have. It's, it's, you know, the, the puzzle pieces don't quite fit. So why would you bring in a manager who is notable for deploying this specific kind of football and not just the formation, but the style with players that don't really fit? Because you look at the players that they've got. And I, I looked at this United-Newcastle game or Manchester United-Newcastle United game. And just on paper, I was sort of looking at it and I was I was kind of halting myself because I looked at the, the team sheet, I think it was a tweet, and I saw the front four that they had, which was Ronaldo, Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood and Bruno Fernandes. And my initial reaction was I was like, that's really top heavy. Who's doing the tracking back in, in, in that? Like, Fernandes is the most defensive player in that that front four. Ronaldo is not going to track back because he's Ronaldo. And to a degree, I think, fair enough. I lament the the death of the luxury player in modern football. Um, but who's going to be winning the ball back and how are you not putting an enormous amount of pressure on the as we know established substandard midfield like central midfielders that United have but then I was sort of that was my initial thought and then I went no no Cameron perhaps you're just slow on the uptake here and actually you're about to see Rangnick's genius in play and you're going to see how all these players meld together in a special system actually what happened was they were top heavy and they got over over on a midfield (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, my, my second question was going to be around this kind of this system, and I know that we talked about it as we th- we thought it was going to work. We thought it was going to work because these floating tens, there are a couple of players that could come in and take on those roles and do them in different ways. So there was tactical flexibility there. It's a little on the nose, but obviously Ralph Rannick's kind of um, his nickname is the Professor, and I just wonder, do you think that what we looked at when we first discussed this 4222 system, it seems like it's something that works on paper, but not in practice. And do you think that that's something that is true? Do you think that it's something that's not going to work? Or do you think it's just a case that the players aren't picking it up yet? Uh, I think based on the very, very, very small sample size we have, it would appear that that is true i do also think that when we talked about you know him coming in and we talked about the players that could really suit the system there's a number of players that we just haven't seen played whether through injury or covid or other reasons like for example paul pogba was the big player that we looked at and thought he could really really benefit here because of his propensity to play as a midfielder and win the ball back but he's also really enjoyed spells for both france and manchester united on the left hand side of midfield and maybe this sort of half space position the sort of frankenstein winger attacking mid could be the perfect role for him we have yet to see whether that's the case. Donny van der Beek is another one who we haven't really seen the, have the chance to stretch his legs but beyond the odd cameo. I think he played um, at the base midfield in their game against Young Boys but uh, didn't have much of a run out beyond that aside from maybe 10 minutes here and there um, and maybe even less than that. Um, so the players that we looked at that we got really excited about the 4-2-2-2 with haven't been used much yet and I do still think that United have the same big issues which is the sort of midfield pivot um so it'll be interesting to see if there's any purchase but yeah based on the strength of the thing so far it's it's not been good I would heavily 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 asterisk that with it's been four games it has been against your Newcastle and your Norwich has not been impressive but it could be the case that in three months time it starts to click and we go ah this is what he was trying to do okay yeah sure thing okay well let's let's talk about these players that maybe haven't had their day in the sun just yet um Often what happens when a new manager comes in, like someone like, as you mentioned, Antonio Conte at Chelsea, they transform the system. What often defines that change in system is players switching up their roles and growing massively as a result. And I'm thinking about someone like 
Victor Moses as a right wing back. No one saw that coming, but it worked great. Do you think that Manchester United have players that are ready to take the step up? Do you think they, they have players that are ready to take on a new system and a new role and do it really well? Do you think there's they're kind of, you know, like ready to, like rearing at the bit, ready to go? Or, or do you see it in a different way? I think there are some players definitely who are raring to, to get their chance and to come into the team. Obviously, the most obvious one, the most obvious example is Donny van der Beek because he sort of was the perpetual bench boy under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So he'll definitely be looking at this and looking at this formation as maybe a way to get a new lease of life. But also, you already see a change in terms of the fullbacks. Aaron Wambasaka and Luke Shaw were mainstays under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and almost immediately they've been jettisoned in favour of Diogo Dallo and Alex Teas. So... Yeah, 100%. I think there are players who are willing to prove themselves and who are going to be fighting. Conversely, now that those two players are in there, you can imagine that Luke Shaw and Wan-Bissaka are going to be trying to fight to get their places back. And interestingly enough, as we'll go into a bit more, and I think we spoke about it when we initially talked about the 4 the fact that a big burden of the creativity and the width in that formation comes from the fullbacks... Luke Shaw is going to be looking at that and going, right, I've been sat down, I have been pretty poor for a while, but I need to fight into the system because actually I could be one of the integral players in a system like this because I'm great at bombing forwards, I'm really good at whipping crosses in, or at least was last season, and could be one of the cogs to actually make this machine tick over the way the boss wants it to. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, there's more of an emphasis in Rangnick's system on attacking fullbacks. And and what you would imagine would come with that is that the the middle two, the attacking midfielders, would maybe then have less pressure to drift wide and they would be able to remain a little bit more central than you might imagine and, and they would therefore be able to be a little bit more defensive solidly. Um, huh, solidly defensive. Um, but that's not necessarily the case, as you say. Definitely Manchester United have been lining up in very attacking ways so far. So it could well be a case of, you know, the balance is still trying to be found and and things could come out and and, you know nothing nothing happens overnight you don't become you know a title winning team I guess um my final question is that it seems to me that the Manchester United are in a slightly different position to you know other teams that have gone through renaissances um under a, a new manager and and by what I mean by that is that it feels like often what happens and what happens What's happened with Manchester United in the past is that performances have continued to slip and get worse and worse. I'm looking at someone like Mourinho, even someone like um, Mourinho at Chelsea as well as at Manchester United. Um, Often what happens when a manager is replaced is that there's one massive loss. There's one big moment and the club clearly decides that enough is enough. This is rock bottom. We need to get better from here. Manchester United, on the other hand, under Oligar Solskjaer, languished in mediocrity for so long that I don't think, you know, when he left, it was it wasn't one final hammer blow, was it? It wasn't even really one final, you know, straw that that broke the camel's back. It was almost just probably enough is enough and we we should maybe try something different. And I I wonder what impact you think this that difference in trajectory is having on the players and if you think that it's maybe perpetuating a little bit of this this mediocrity within the players because there wasn't some big like well that's it now everything has to change yeah I think it's a really important distinction to make and I think definitely when you have a sort of dramatic sacking it can be symbolically and you know very obviously for the players a time to turn the page and and really sort of start a fresh new you know turn over a new leaf all that sort of stuff whereas when you have sort of a a, a scrabbling sort of fall away from grace as was the soldier thing and the man was sort of hanging on to his job for the better part of 18 months um it, it, it does maybe sort of leave an imprint on you know what message does that send to the players in the squad? You can be not good enough for a long time and keep your job. What message does that send to Harry Maguire, for example, who continues to to Maguire his way around that defence? But I just think it, it's it's for a lot of reasons, that being one of them, it's not an easy time to try and put a new imprint on Manchester United. Perhaps the hardest club in world football to put your imprint on as a coach, not least because of uh, old Fergie peering over you from, from the director's box. But I just think the performances so far have not 
despite the change in formation, looked like they've improved. If anything, United have regressed in some senses. An interesting stat I saw about this match was that Manchester United lost possession 167 times in this game, which is the most in any of their Premier League matches this season. Now, that's a pretty damning stat, but to come against Newcastle, aside in 19th place with only one win to their name, really demonstrates just the, the disarray and the confusion exhibited by the players. And part of that is going to come with a new manager full stop, because there's a whole new sense of things, whether it's new backroom staff, whatever. Part of that is going to be because we're in a really sort of packed, frenzied part of the season, even, you know, made even more packed and frenzied by COVID postponements around the corner and COVID tests and all that. But so far, so bad, you'd have to say. And, and maybe it'll be improved, but. It's just not been a good start for Rangnick. It definitely hasn't, and it's going to be an interesting thing to watch how it develops because while he's not had the impact that he would have wanted to have had and what Manchester United fans would have wanted him to have had at the start, I do think that there is potential for him to grow and and you only need to look at the players, as we talked about, to see that there is a lot of room for growth there. So, you know, Manchester United could well be challenging for the title by the end of the season they could well be sitting very comfortably in fourth or fifth um you know it'll all come out in the pudding so well, let's, was... let's talk about the the other united in this game uh not to not to spend too long on manchester united just because i wanted to talk about newcastle there's two sides of, of obviously every game and uh, united didn't look very good but newcastle united did look very good indeed um they were oddly good in this game in parts and Alan Sam Maximan had a great game, apart from the sort of aforementioned clear chance that he hit straight at the keeper, which I think they were 1-0 up at the time, and he looked really frustrated because that would have definitely shut down the game, um, and that's definitely playing on his mind. But maybe the, the man of the match, and I think who was voted the man of the match, was a, a much maligned player by pretty much everyone. You know, you, me, every pundit, presumably his parents as well. Uh, Joe Linton, who had an absolutely fantastic game. It was like him and Cristiano Ronaldo had had a bit of a freaky Friday moment in the tunnel before the game. <laughs> yeah, it was surprising, isn't it? It's funny as well, because if there was going to be any player that was going to have a a surprise, positive impact, I genuinely thought it was going to be John Joe Shelby. But here's Joel Linton proving me wrong. Yeah, usually a real, real millstone uh, for the Magpies, but looked really, really good. And not only did he look good going forwards, he had the most key passes of any player in the game, but he also had the most ball recoveries and the most interceptions. So he was really putting in the work in the midfield, really working hard to recycle possession, win the ball back, contributing massively to that stat I read earlier about United losing the ball 167 times, being a, just a real nuisance, which sometimes is what a player like Alisson Maximan wants more than anything else, not someone who's necessarily going to thread a perfect pass, although he did that as well, but someone who's basically just going to cause like absolute chaos in the back line. So they're all going to create like, oh. half chances. Exactly. Who's this guy stomping around so that someone who's a bit quicker and a bit trickier like Sam Maximan, who was a bag of tricks as ever, but especially in this game, could just sort of swoop in and pick up the ball and, you know, do all of his dribbling stuff. It's good. It seems good. I mean, do you think that this is the start of, of something positive and exciting at Newcastle? Or do you think it's just another kind of potential step in the right direction, but hard, too hard to tell? You know, they beat Burnley at the beginning of December and then proceeded to concede, you know, like 10 plus goals in the next three games, albeit against City, Liverpool and Leicester. It, it, it's tough to say. I mean, it's tough to say for any team really at the moment because how many teams are we seeing getting a run of fixtures? Everyone has such a disrupted schedule where they'll get sort of two games, then they don't play for 14 days, and then they play two games in two days. So it's really difficult to get a feel on how... And, and also all of these games are being played with like four or five players missing at least. So it, it's really tough to get a good, well-informed feel on how anyone is playing at the moment in the league. But I think getting a result like this can only be positive for them in the long run. Definitely. And um, as you say, you know, Newcastle seemed to perform really well and they, they could be disappointed that they weren't able to hold on to their, their lead. They defended really well. They hit people, uh, Manchester United on the counter well. And, you know, I guess the immediate contrast is that these, these teams both have new managers. Um, Eddie Howe came in at the beginning of November. Rolf Ragnick came in at the end of November. Kind of two, three weeks separate the appointments. Do you think that we could see Manchester United pulling out a performance like this in three weeks' time, do you think that Newcastle's trajectory of improvement is going to be more rapid than Manchester United's? Well, I hope so. But interestingly, for both of these teams, maybe the most important factor in how these managers fare is what's coming up in just a couple of days and has in some places started already, uh, which is obviously the winter transfer window, uh, which is obviously going to be hugely impactful for United, ever the big spenders. Uh, and of course, now Newcastle United, who have got the wealthiest club in the world to see what they do as well. Um 
but we can get into that when we talk about our transfers, as there will be a transfer episode upcoming. I want to talk about one of the few first transfers that's gone through, just just briefly, just because I saw this, and it was rumoured a while ago, and when it was rumoured, I think we may have even talked about it here as a rumour, um, how weird this move was. And it's gone through now, and I still think this is one of those bizarre instances where the move looks like it's a bad one for all parties involved, uh, and that's Ferran Torres going to Barcelona for €55 million, Euros for, uh, plus, I believe, €10 million Euros in add-ons, which I, I don't know what the qualification is for, for those, but a, a, a really interesting move for a lot of reasons. Um, I think Ferran Torres has been really, really good this season for Manchester City and has at times been their sort of de facto striker, so I'm not really sure why they've let him go. I think that Barcelona, for all their protestation of not having enough money, buying a player like Ferran Torres, who is in a sense kind of a striker, not really an out-and-out striker. And I don't see where they would necessarily... Like, what they have players in the positions that they've bought him in, and I don't see that he was worth spending what is, according to Barcelona, pretty tight purse strings. And I think for Ferran Torres, it's a really weird move because you're moving from a club that is definitely challenging for the league title this season and very potentially challenging for the Champions League and, and other honours to go to a club that is really, really struggling in La Liga at the moment and doesn't look like it's necessarily going to be bouncing back anytime soon with all their massive debt. <laughs> Well, so, I mean, let, let's break it down one by one, as you have. Um, to speak of Ferran Torres initially, I, I know what you mean. To move from a club that's winning things to a club that looks like it's in dire straits seems counterintuitive. But at the same time, he's not starting every game for Manchester City. So, you know, there will be a part of him that wants more game time. And I, I do think that it's a real trait, um, or not a trait, it's a real trend um, that top players, and by top I mean, you know, performing consistently in in the top flight of, of football um, can often have, which is the the potential excitement to be part of a rebuild at a historical club. And, you know, we've talked about Aubameyang coming to Arsenal for that potential reason, but I think Manchester United are a really good example of a club where a lot of players, probably most notably someone like Paul Pogba, have gone to and thought, I'm going to be the catalyst for change. And I, I can fully imagine that someone like Ferran Torres, and I imagine that a lot of other players will probably do the same, will look at this and go, Barcelona are in trouble. They're too big to fail. It's Barcelona. I've grown up loving them and watching them, and they're one of the biggest clubs in the world, if not, you know, maybe top two or three, probably at least for a long part of my life, the top club in the world. He'll go, you know, it's too big to fail. I can be a, you know, I can get in the... In the, the the bottom level and help build it up again. I'm Spanish. I I want to help achieve this. Um, he might even you know have grown up with a soft spot for Barcelona. So I, I get it from his perspective. Um, and then I know what you mean in terms of it not really making sense for for both Man City and Barcelona. But I think that the more you look at it, it makes sense for one and not the other. And the one it makes sense for is Man City. I get what you're saying that you know he's led the line a lot this season so far, but hasn't really worked all that well for City. Yes, they're the top of the table, but, you know, the, the frightening thing about City is that they can be the top of the table by six points already and still look like they've got so much more to give. That's slightly, in, you know, an indication of the fact that other teams across the Premier League have struggled at times, but also of, of the massive, massive amount of talent that City have. And I think they'll be looking at this window and going, regardless of whether or not we sold Torres, we are going to get in a new striker. So for them to be able to make 55 mil off someone like Torres, who is not even really a striker, I think in retrospect is very savvy business. Um, you would hope, you would imagine they've got someone lined up. We haven't seen it yet, but I would not be surprised in the slightest if you know by the end of January, by the end of the window, they have a new player and Ferran Torres departing helped, you know, fund that so I think that makes sense from City um, Barcelona I don't think it makes a single shred of well, it, it, it makes sense for a lot of clubs but City are one of the few clubs in the world that don't really need to sell a player to fund a move I disagree I think I think every team every club needs to do it now more than ever because of financial fair play and, and I let's not get too cynical about it let's not go into too much detail here but the, at the end of the day <laughs> the top Cor clubs Corbin in the world Corbyn was even out of the gates there but let's just—it's not worth the the ten minute argument because we we all agree with everything. But at the end of the day, clubs are looking for ways to to balance their books in ways that they wouldn't mm. have worried about fifteen years ago. So that's really all you need to look at with that. It, it makes sense financially. 
it's a it's more money than Ferran Torres is worth. And crucially, I always like to look at the, about this, and we talked about it a little bit with Jack Grealish. It's more money than Torres is worth to Manchester City. I think that's the main thing. Yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily unfair. So, so maybe in the hierarchy of like who wins best, it's, it's Manchester City. It just seemed kind of weird to me, cause, especially because like he was doing, he was playing his best football for Manchester City just before he got his foot injury. I think he scored like a hat trick against, or he got like a brace and assist against Arsenal or something, and maybe he got a hat trick in another game. He was like looking like he was really hitting a stride, and he's only twenty one, which is like you know his ceiling is clearly very very high and just for him to now go to you know Barcelona I think it is true they're too big to fail obviously Barcelona will be back but I think it's a question of when that's going to happen because at the moment it's not like they're a little bit off the ball they're 18 points off the top of La Liga at this point in the season in seventh that is you're not winning the league you're not winning the league probably for a few years and as we know, because of the state of their their finances, it's not like this is going to be sort of the first signing of many. This is probably their marquee signing. I think as it stands, and I could be wrong because there was a big deal signed between um, La Liga clubs and that um, that uh, private equity group, CVC Capital Partners, that sort of gave them all a bit of cash. But I, but I think it's still the case that they're going to need to do a bit of, you know, moving around of the money to even register Ferran Torres. So... Uh, if you're Torres, unless he's really just run into this blindly, which he may have, he may have been a Barcelona fan growing up and that's always been his dream and et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like an odd move for for him for this time instead of as a 21-year-old who's getting, granted, not consistent starts, but a decent amount of football in a, in a team that does rotate a lot and showcasing himself well enough to the European scene that he's earned a price tag of up to 65 million euros, that he would continue that path of development rather than going to a club that's in freefall. Yeah, look, I, I agree that, you know, if you put in your logical hat, there are reasons why you would think maybe this isn't the best decision for me uh, as a player. But also, uh, so how many interviews do you need to read with, with top players or even just any player where they say, you know, X big club called and, and you know, the blinkers were on or, you know, my head went or I just knew I had to join them. And then Barcelona will always be, regardless of all of these logical reasons, one of those clubs, if not, you know, the club, that after maybe Real Madrid or maybe Manchester United, where people just go, oh my God, they want me? Yes. Yes, please. A thousand times yes. Um, so I can, I can get it. I'm not saying that it makes sense. I'm saying I can get it. So, so, so it raises an interesting question, and it's not really a question that we have an answer to uh, at the moment, or, or, or perhaps ever, but the question is sort of, how long can a club like a Barcelona or a Real Madrid, or if you're in Germany, Bayern Munich, sort of keep up that clout and ha- continue to be that much of a draw to big names? Like, how bad would Barcelona have to be, and for how long would they have to be that bad before the mystique of playing for the Blaugrana began to disappear? Or, or is that just infinite? I I think it's a generational thing. I think you've lost the game if you can't get back to being big again with a new crop of players coming through that haven't grown up thinking that you are one of the best teams in the world. If if it takes them 10 years or 12 years, then there'll be all the footballers coming through who who think of Barcelona as a failed club. And I don't want to be too rude about it, but you'll look at someone like AC Milan and you'll go, they have an amazing history. They are not a top club anymore. And I think people are starting to think about it with Manchester United. I think that they're starting to think about it probably about Arsenal. That's my take is I think it's a generational thing. Yeah, I'm just... I think that's a pretty fair take, yeah. That's a a good way to look at it. It, 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 The only reason I think it's interesting is because you look at... Milan and Arsenal, obviously huge, huge, huge clubs in their own right back in the day. But like, as you've described, when you so many different examples of so many different footballers from so many different time periods who talk about Barcelona and Real Madrid being sort of like the absolute zenith of football. And so I'm wondering if, like, if they'd have like more, like they, they could be in the Segunda division and people would still be like, but it's Barcelona. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I think Milan were were that big. They surely were that big at the time, at least in Italy, at least in Italy. Um, you know, think of the think of the teams they had at the turn of the um, the century um, and, and beyond into kind of um, up to probably even 05 when maybe when Maldini retired is when, um, you know, the, the last vestiges of, of, you know, the golden glow of the generation started to fade. Um, 
but Milan were absolutely huge through the 80s and 90s um, and, and, and the noughties and their, their legacy was massive. Um, but they faded into obscurity. Maybe this is just a symptom of me sort of like talking about the interviews that I've because I, I, my my sort of informed opinion of like what players always talk about it is interviews I've seen over the last twenty years and obviously I haven't seen that many interviews of like <laughs> players from nineteen eighty three over the last twenty years so so yeah I take your point. Um, well, it's interesting. It's tricky because even if someone joins somewhere like Milan now, they'll still cite Mil- Milan as like a historic club and stuff because you're saying the right things. But there comes a mm. point where I think that gets cynical. Do you know what I mean? Rather than just being like, like, oh, as soon as Milan came along, like I had to say yes, like I parred off Juve. Um, do you know what I mean? I feel like yeah, no, no, they'll, they'll keep saying that long, long after it's no longer true. Um, but yeah, continuing on to speak about Barcelona um, for this Ferran Torres transfer, this is the point that it makes no sense to me. And and I don't know why I'm still looking for, for reason and, and logic and sensible behaviour at Barcelona when they've proven themselves to be an absolutely shambolically run club. But, like, what are you doing? To pick up someone like Ferran Torres for 55 million when you're that much in debt is just bizarre. They're just floundering, they're flailing, and they're trying to scramble onto whatever they can get their hands on to, to keep themselves afloat. And... They're just going to take themselves and everyone that's associated with them down with them. And I think they're drowning. I really do. But Barcelona, they kind of reminded me, they, they kind of remind me of, um, you know, that show Arrested Development? Uh, yeah. You know how like it's basically that this that the family the Bluths they're like these like really old world like moneyed family and they suddenly lose it all and like half the family are, like really struggling to come to terms with like how to live their lives when they can't do these ludicrous spending habits like Lucille well, Ball's they, character, they're still like wait uh, Ball, how did like, you go on this massive spending trip and they're like yeah like, 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 my credit card? like oh I'm just going down and like buying <laughs> all these like ridiculous pearls and they're like no you can't do that we like uh, owe the government like millions of dollars and she's like what. <laughs> I, th- I think that's Barcelona. Barcelona are used to like being able to go down to like the, the jewelry store and buy all the shiniest new pearls, if for no other reason, just so that their their you know neighbors from Madrid can't have them. And all of a sudden, it's like no, 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 Barcelona, you, you need to start living inside your mean means now. Please buy a ready meal and move into this apartment. And Barcelona are like, no, sixty million pound midfielder. <laughs> Well, so you think like um, Juan Laporta blues, comes back, bold. comes back into uh, the camp now from from a trip to England, and Chavi's like, "Where have you been? What's in those bags?" And he's like, "Oh, I bought Ferran Torres." He's like, "How?" He's like, "Oh, I used my credit card." Like, no. <laughs> yeah, I think I, 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 I that's exactly what it is. He's like, "What's in those? <laughs> what's in those bags? They have like big uh, like Manchester City logos on the front." Like, hey, the what's the bag? He's like, "Groceries." He's like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. But it is just so frustrating to look at from the outside. And it's funny in a comedy if you're watching someone like Shit's Creek, but it's not It's not how Barcelona need to be run at the moment. Yeah, Shit's and... Creek is another great example. I think the, the entire like club of Barcelona is like Alexis a character. <laughs> Yeah, to be fair, I could uh, I could readily believe it. I mean, I could, Barcelona is all of them, any and all of them. I don't think any of them handle it well. Um, but it it is just... I mean, the flip side of that is that, you know, you don't go bankrupt in the same way as other people go bankrupt. And what that means is that you can prop yourself up on your name and your legacy for much longer than than other clubs can. Um, and, and I think what that means is that you can keep pushing yourself further and further into debt while trying to save yourself. And people will allow you to do that because your name carries weight. And Barcelona are not slowing their downward trajectory in the slightest, in my opinion. No, not at all. And it's it's just weird because it's like for a minute there, for just a just a split second, it almost looked like they were trying to sort of rein it in a little bit under Juan Laporta and be a little bit sensible. And they made loads of free transfers over the summer with the sort of Eric Garcias and Sergio Agueros, and they were promoting loads of young players like Gavi uh, and and um, Ilay Mariba in, into the first team and and sort of getting all those players in. And it sort of started to look like maybe just so that their sort of the creditors would go, okay, Barcelona are financially running. And then as soon as everyone's eyes went off them, they were like sixty million for a player we don't need <laughs> wait what <laughs> uh yeah absolutely <laughs> well let's not get too tied into barcelona we've covered them a couple of times um we're going to talk a little later on about our team of the season so far and we're just going to name uh, a goalkeeper a defender a midfielder and an attacker that we've been most impressed with so far this season but before we do that um we'll do a little bit of useless trivia and we're also going to talk about west ham a little bit a couple of other clubs um just because they have 
been playing some very good football recently, and at the heart of it has been Jared Bowen. Yeah, and I, I just want to talk about this in part just to sort of tee up a much longer conversation about West Ham that I'm sure we'll have down the line, because I think that as the season goes on, the West Ham story is only going to continue to get more interesting. Obviously, we touched on them a little bit last season through the Lingard thing and through Kevin Nolan coming as the first team coach and big old Davy Moyes, um, you know, looking like a great, great manager again. And they're doing well again. They're in fifth place heading into the new year. Um, obviously, got to put a little bit of an asterisk on that because it's thanks in part to postponed games. But also, more recently, both Spurs and United dropping points. Um, they've had some really, really good results this season. They've picked up wins against Liverpool, Chelsea and Spurs, which is three of the hardest games in the fixture calendar. Um, and there's a lot to really like about how West Ham have looked this season, notably, as you've mentioned, Jared Byrne. Uh, but we'll get into him in, in a minute. But they've also thrown away a lot of games that have been a little bit iffy they've sort of lost games they shouldn't have I think the most recent game against Southampton was one that they had no real right to lose but kind of thrown away and on occasion they've been a little bit impotent up front which we all kind of expected when they went into the the season that they're only sort of recognized I say recognized striker being Mikel Antonio but that guy is like a Swiss army knife player so he's a striker as much as he is a right back or a midfielder and he's been playing and all those things at times Um, but Jared Bowen has been sort of filling that that up and yeah, I just wanted to, to talk about him because he's been so, so impressive. And he's only 25. He has, if you look at his career trajectory, every single year he's kicked on from the level he was on beforehand, which may seem, you know, we all like to imagine that players all have that FIFA manager mode trajectory, but sometimes players hit a wall. But he's, you know, came from obviously Hereford Town, the now defunct Hereford Town and Reborn Hereford United, went over to Hull, continued his craft at Hull. Did you know that he got, in his last season at Hull, 16 goals in 29 games? I only learned that like a couple of days ago. I did, I did not that, know that. Isn't that a great record? Um, Incredibly impressive. As a striker, that's very impressive. Right? So so he sort of did that in his last season at Hull. He's come into West Ham, did really well the last couple of seasons, and now this season has been like, he was one of the players that you sort of would sort of footnote last season, the season four, and you would go, oh, well, West Ham have lots of good players like Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek, and oh, oh, and that guy, Jared Byrne. Now he's become one of the first names you would list, if not the first name. And I just think, he's 25 now, he keeps improving, he could potentially take the next step and evolve into a really dangerous player, which is always really exciting to see and think about and think about how a player's career could go. And he's also really versatile. And one of the things that excites me about Jared Byrne the most is that a lot like Michael Antonio, he's really versatile. He's played in all sorts of positions across the sort of front line for West Ham so far. And that's really, really good and makes you valuable as an asset. But I also would love to see what he would look like with a more sort of clearly defined role. Because even recently, he's played up front, he's played on the right. Even in the most recent game he played, he sort of found himself drifting wide to collect the ball, taking it to the byline against Watford when he sort of started, he got three assists, or two assists and won a penalty. I would love to see him, whether that's at, if West Ham sort of buy a proper out-and-out striker to support Antonio and, and him in that sort of front line. I would love to see him play... To, to the best of his abilities, as it were, at this point, I can't remember, because I think he could really, really be exciting as a player. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think um, the reason why, you know, at least part of the reason why you've got to credit to all of the success um, that he's had so far and the fact that he's continuing to, to improve is that he just seems to have a really good attitude. Um, he's always running. He's always putting putting his his heart into his performances. And he just he just battles on the pitch. And he's, it's such an asset to have. I think it's a lot of the reason why West Ham are doing so well, because I think Antonio's similar. Um, they don't ever let their profile as a player get in the way of how they're performing, which might sound like a weird thing, but it, it also just means that you can play without concern far above your level. Well, it's a pair of non-league players like who came from non-league, so maybe that's a big part of it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, West Ham are... <laughs> Uh, defying expectations yet again and it's it's one of those things where you keep thinking like at some point surely the the fuel is going to run out and um, you know they're going to drop back down the table but you know if Leicester are anything to go by they might well stay in the top half of the top half of the table yeah, absolutely. And, and long may it continue because they've got so many interesting sort of mini narratives going on in that, in that club and, and players that, you know, Antonio is definitely one that I've always sort of had a bit of a soft spot for. And, and now Jared Bone has also become a player that I have a, a soft spot for. And not just it's just such a likeable West Ham, isn't this it? Week. Like Thomas Suchek, 
um, as well. Is such a such a good player. I mean, I'm even happy. I didn't I, I didn't like Fabianski when he was at Arsenal, but somehow I like him at West Ham. Does that make sense? They, they just seem like a much more likable team. And we talked about it with the Lingard thing, how they all sort of like play Cluedo or whatever together, and, and it, it just seems like a nice atmosphere. And you, and you want them to do well. You do indeed. Let's move into useless trivia real quick. I've got a, a fun little one for you here that I actually nicked from the uh, excellent commentary of John Champion and Ali McCoist on tonight's game between oh, Leicester and Liverpool. Um, and I sort of ha- have a little bit to add on to it, but it was just one that stood out to me. And that was obviously Leicester beat Liverpool 1-0 tonight. Before tonight's game, it was five years since Liverpool had last lost a Premier League game in December which is a, a great festive record, especially when you consider how many games you usually play in December. It's not like, uh, you know, there were all those meme stats that came up after the lockdown. Where it was like, so-and-so is the first player to score in, you know, August since whenever. Um, and it's also the first time in eight months for Liverpool they failed to score in a league game. So two huge records, one eight months, one five years they got broken in this game. Yeah, massively impressive to, to maintain that level of consistency. Wait, so they haven't, they, they haven't lost a game for five years in December, did you say? Yeah. Wow. Isn't that, that crazy? Is pretty pretty wildly impressive. I mean, I guess so what's that? I mean, it's it's quite anomalous in that it's only really like not losing a game over the course of 5 months, which which isn't in itself like a, a wildly incredible thing, but it's just so impressive especially when you say um, you know, as you say, sorry, in December, it's the grittiest time of the season really for a lot of reasons. Yeah, the, the most sort of chaotic, coin-flippy time when, when losses are so much more common for, for big teams, as we saw tonight with Liverpool. Absolutely. Uh, well, so I've got quite a, yeah, quite a funny little uh, piece of trivia that I came across um, this week that I've never seen before, and I'm hoping you haven't either, which is okay. that, um, did you know that Arthur Conan Doyle once played in goal for Portsmouth? Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, the the, the author of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. That's a that's a bizarre one. What was he doing doing that? <laughs> it is a bizarre one. So, um, fittingly for an author such as himself, he played under a pseudonym, A.C. Smith. Unfortunately, it wasn't actually Portsmouth FC as we know it now, the uh, you know professional association football club. It was one of the precursors. Um, Portsmouth FC was founded in 1898, and Portsmouth AFC, which Arthur Conan Doyle played played in goal for for a game, um, lasted until 1896. So it was one of kind of the early origins of the club, but not in fact the club now as we know it. Um, but just a just a really weird, uh, fun old piece of trivia that I had never seen before, and I thought that I would like to share it with you. So you might say that that Portsmouth as the predecessor to the Portsmouth we know today, that Portsmouth is to the Portsmouth we know as Arthur Conan Doyle is to David James. I think we can say that with some confidence, yes. Okay, well, that that segues us perfectly into our team of the mid-season because we're going to be starting with the goalkeepers. Uh, this is just <laughs> did a little Did you pick David look. James as well? Because I, I know I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did indeed. This is just a look. Obviously, we're about halfway through the season now with 19 games played. Uh, just a look at four positions, goalkeeper, defender, midfielder, and uh, forward or attacker, uh, that we think have really stood up and been the best in that role so far. Um, it's interesting because, obviously, with those three you know, latter ones, defender, midfielder, and, and forward, there's a lot of sort of, are you going to go for a fullback, are you going to go for centre-back? So I'm, I'm looking forward to us sort of wildly differing on some of these and being very interested if we do agree on any of them. Uh, but let's start off with goalkeeper, because we might have some similarities here. Who have you gone for in goal for your team of the mid-season? Yeah, sure thing. So I, I guess I'll just quickly preface all of my um, decisions by saying what I've roughly looked for in, in these selections is I've looked for, I've looked at clubs that I think are outperforming in certain areas and I've looked at reasons why and I've tried to pick players that I think are the reasons why, at least in part, these clubs are doing so well in, in certain areas of the pitch. So when it comes to goalkeeper, um, obviously a lot of the, the important statistics are things like goals conceded, um, shot saves and all of that stuff and one of the key players that's come out of it, it and someone that I've been um, consistently impressed with over the course of the season and someone that I'm sure if you didn't pick him you at least considered him which is um, Watford's uh, sorry <laughs> Wolves' goalkeeper um, Jose Sarr Oh yes a very interesting keeper indeed been really really good but but I, I don't want to blow up your spot walk me through why you've gone for him So uh, I think the main reason is that um, 
you know, in terms of like where they are in the table, they are currently sat in eighth place. They've got a goal difference of minus one. <laughs> so they've they've only scored 13 goals this season. And now bearing in mind that the teams on both sides of them, one point, one one place above them is Man U, who scored 27, and Leicester below them, who scored 31. Leicester have conceded 33 goals. Wolves have conceded just 14, which is, I think, the third best um, record in the, the league after Manchester City and Chelsea. And I think that you can look at more readily City and Chelsea's defence and their setup and say, that's really, um, you know, it's obviously an impressive statistic, but it's also based on how good their defenders are and how good their manager is. And I, I'm not, I don't want to take away from um, Wolves' manager or their defence because I think they've also been very good this season. But I think Jose Sars stands out statistically um, above the other two goalkeepers in terms of, um, you know, he's got the highest um, save percentage of anyone in the league, 85%. Um, and he also has, um, he, he just finishes high in, in a lot of different statistics in terms of, um, you know, shots on target against and, and goals against and things like that. So he is my choice. Yeah, a very, a really, really good choice. Definitely really rate that. It's interesting because you talked about a lot of these statistical arguments for him there, all of which are very, very valid. One of the things that I've been most impressed with by Jose Sarr is something that uh, maybe there's a stat for this, I don't know, but it's just the way that he's really good at sort of patrolling his area and coming out of the box quickly uh, when there are sort of long balls. And this is always a good trait to have in a keeper. Every time keepers do it, you get the pundits going, or the comments going, oh, that's good keeping. But particularly for Wolves, who under Bruno Lager like to play hyper-compact and with a high defensive line, it would be very easy to be caught out, especially because they don't have the fastest centre-backs in the world, with a ball over the top and someone running in behind. And all too often when that does happen, Jose Sarr is really sharp on it. He's always positioned really well to do that. He's very, very, very rarely beaten by a ball over the top or a, def- or a sort of a, a striker who breaks the defensive line because he's just quick to get that. Um, so I don't know what the numerical quantity of that would be, how, do, how you would do that. But in the case that there isn't one for that, I just thought that was worth a mention as well. Um, really like that choice. He was one of the ones I was thinking about. He wasn't my eventual winner. My eventual can I, winner. Can I, guess who, can I guess who it was? You, well, I think it's really, it's an argument between these two keepers. I think everyone else has been great, but I think these two have stood above, well, everyone else has been good has been great, but these two have been the best. Uh, but feel free to have a guess. Is it Ilan Melier? Uh, no, it's not Ilan Melier. He's, he's another very good one. Uh, I think he has, through no fault of his own, just str- struggled with a lot of, you know, shots. So I, it's been difficult for me to see the good sides Aaron sometimes Ramsdale. in their games. Uh, I have. I've gone for Aaron Ramsdale. Um, I think Aaron nice. Ramsdale, much much like I talked about Jose Sarr there, sort of enhancing and complementing the way that his defence plays, I, I think that Aaron Ramsdale at Arsenal has sort of overseen a transformation of the back line. And for the first time in a, in a long time, maybe even a decade, Arsenal have, on occasion, not every week, it is still Arsenal we're talking about, but have on occasion shown the ability to close out games when they're ahead, um, which I think is largely in part the fact that he is able to make top, top saves. He's, uh, for my money, made the best save of the season so far uh, against Leicester with that James Madison free kick. And I think his distribution also has massively helped Arsenal build up play from the back. He's really good at getting the ball and placing it perfectly. He can sometimes take two or three players out of the game and whip it out to whoever's sort of waiting to receive it. And that just starts a phase of play where the forward players for the opposition team are suddenly like, oh, we've been bamboozled here and then all of a sudden the counter-attack is on which again is sort of an example of complementary goalkeepers to the rest of the team and I think maybe most importantly of Ramsdale and this is definitely something that there isn't a stat for unless you have like XS for expected shouts he is at a club that has often been criticized in recent years for having really dispassionate players and what I like about Ramsdale when I watch Arsenal play is that he's genuinely a bit of a nutter like he loves the game he loves the club he plays for I remember he brought his granddad's ashes when he signed and he's just always screaming and shouting throughout the game at his own players, at the opposition players, at the fans behind him. He just brings like an energy that just brings up the rest of the team by like five, ten percent, which is just so important to have at a club. Yeah, I think um, especially when you've got a, a young team that's rotating a lot and they're trying to maintain their momentum and they're trying to creep their way up the table, which they have done really impressively the most important thing is that you've got a cornerstone for the revolution. And it seems like Aaron Ramsdale is that player. Um, as you say, he's so vocal, he's so passionate, um, and he so often has these big moments where it's some unbelievable pass that, that you know, goes 
like goes past the whole midfield, the whole of the defense, straight to um, the striker running away, or it's it's you know these big saves, these big moments, um, and and you can you know look at statistics, and statistics are important, but equally important is someone that kind of, as you say, encapsulates what is everything that's good about a, a side, and Aaron Ramsdale is that player for for Arsenal. Let's move into defence. For defence, I have gone for... This is one where I think, despite the fact that you can go a lot of decisions, maybe we've gone the same, although there have been a lot of candidates. I feel like we're going to be different as well, but that probably means we're going to be the same. (laughs) The defender I've gone for is Joao Cancelo. Oh, Um, (laughs) Yeah, we've got the same player. Same player? (laughs) Yeah, same player. He's just well, he's, no, just, we, I mean, uh, he's just done everything, hasn't he? He's been really good. I mean, that, that, that really says it all, doesn't it? There's so many. We can choose from a left-back, a right-back, centre-back. We've both gone for the same player. He's just been... Uh, <laughs> but I, I think I, that means I, he's I, a standout as well. Well, I think I think he it really does mean a standout. And I think it's the, the highest compliment that you can pay to someone like Joao Cancelo is that, like, in the Premier League, we get quite spoiled in recent years with attacking fullbacks, even right-backs like Joao Cancelo, although he plays both positions. We've got him, Trent Alexander-Arnold, and Reese James playing every week, all three of them, absolutely exceptional, maybe the top three in the world in their position, um, and we get to watch the play every week. And despite that, every time I see Joao Cancelo play this season, I'm going, good God, how, how is he doing what he's doing? He's such a good player. He's so interesting. He's joint second for through balls in not just the Premier League, but all of Europe's top five leagues, of top five leagues. Which he's a wing back who basically plays as like a right winger half the time. He's equally competent. And this is the thing that slightly sort of knocks him above those other two I mentioned who are also obviously world-class players, but he's equally competent as a right back, but also plays as a left back. And he never sort of, he's not one of those left backs like you often see with someone like Kieran Trippier, for example, where you go, uh, he's lost a bit. He just plays in a slightly different way, goes a bit more central, but his City never lose anything when he's playing on the left instead of the right, um, which I think is just a, a particularly rare quality for a top-level fullback, or indeed top-level any position, to have someone who can play in multiple roles equally competently. So, so I think he's got to be the, the top defender, and, and clearly you agree, um, so feel free to, to add <laughs> add any, any observations. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think um, City have been so impressive defensively, they've only conceded 12 goals. And as good as Cancelo has been going forward, as you say, second most through balls in Europe. Um, he's also got four assists, which is um, really impressive. Um, and if you want to look at the defensive side of things, for City, he's second for aerial battles one, and he's second second for most amount of tackles just behind Rodrigo. Um, so, you know, he, he really does do it all on the pitch. And City have been dominant They've they've won a lot of games, they've scored a lot of goals, and they've conceded very few. And I think that he has just been the the quintessence of all of those good things. Yeah, I, I really do think it's actually interesting, and this is a good point, a good time to raise this. Um, just for listeners, we have decided for this team in the mid-season, before we get into midfields and forwards, to just imagine a world where Mohamed Salah doesn't exist, just for the sake of not both talking about Salah for ages. You all know he's good. We know he's good. He's been the best player in the league by miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. So we just it's want not, to tell It's not an interesting variants. or fun thing to, to have a conversation about why we think Mo Salah's good. Yeah, agreed. Exactly. Based on so 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 just to sort of move on from that, just just asking you, Rupert, in a world that we've created for ourselves where Mo Salah doesn't exist, do you think that Joao Cancelo by the end of the season could be in for a shout for Player of the Season? It's interesting, isn't it? I I I would like to imagine it just it? just because I think that I mean it's not it's not a really a hot take at all, but defenders and midfielders get so overlooked for any sort of prize or award it's always a, an attacking midfielder or a striker or, or someone who it has you know a showy good time and I don't mean someone that is a showboater I mean someone that posts the numbers week in week out goals assists chances created all of that good stuff it, it doesn't have to be someone like Harry Kane with most goals and assists it could be someone like De Bruyne but it's always someone who produces amazing exciting attacking football that wins it and that's not to say that Cancelo can't do that but his game is so well-rounded that I wouldn't want the defensive side of his of his performances to be overlooked, which uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they were. Um, I would like it him him to win it. I would be surprised if City can hold on to the title without both Liverpool and Chelsea completely flopping, 
and without another player rising above Joao Cancelo. I think he's really, really good, but I don't think he has it in him to be as good as someone like Kevin De Bruyne. And feel free to tell me that you disagree, but that's my opinion. No, I, I think that's pretty fair. And I do think that the award does favour those. I, I just had a look while you were sort of going over there. Did you know, would you be surprised if I told you that, well, it's not really that surprising, but I think it's a bit surprising, that the both the Premier League Player of the Season and the PFA Players Player of the Year has never been won by a fullback? Um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the in the bloody slightest. I, I suppose it's just like more quantified brilliance, but but no, I, I take your point about Kevin De Bruyne, but I I just want it to break tradition. And any of the fullbacks mentioned, I'd be happy to win it. Just to just to really really just just defy tradition and and bring us something new and interesting. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Um, that being said, um, I believe that Trent Alexander Arnold was the winner of November's Player of the Month. So stranger things have happened. Um, yeah, such a such an impressive player Cancelo is. Um, moving into midfield and the, I mean, I think Salah would probably still constitute a forward and not a midfielder. But in in a most Salahless world, who have you got in for your uh, player of the season so far? I have gone for, and this is a bit of a theme between my midfield and, and potentially my forward, because there's a, a little little bit of a, a cup tie, which I'll get into when I get into my forward. But for midfielder, Don't I've gone Conor for a Gallagher. player who has been fantastic, um, not only in his own right, but also you know for the club that he's played for and helped lift them up to another level, and it is indeed Conor Gallagher. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Listen, good. man, the fact good. that we've agreed just good. means it's a yep. good opinion. Yeah, he, he just represents everything that's been good about. Crystal Palace um, and he, he does yeah he, he's been leading the charge and championing the the renaissance under uh, um, god I'm having a mind blank what's his name um, pa- Patrick Vieira's Patrick Crystal Palace Vieira, yeah. thank you but yeah don't let what, me what, interrupt what, you go on what I think is really interesting about Conor Gallagher is obviously he's 21 years old he's a very young player he's you know had a couple of loan spells here and there and a lot of the time when you watch younger players, when you watch players who have not been that long out of academy systems, you'll see, especially top academy systems, you'll see this thing where they kind of play a multitude of roles, but not any of them particularly well. And it's it's a result of what, what happens in the youth system where coaches will sort of try and aid your development by sort of trying you out in all sorts of different positions, not only to see where you're best at, but also to sort of go, okay, well, if you want to learn how to play against a right mid fielder why don't we stick you on the mid for a little bit and they'll go oh but I'm a defensive mid and they'll go well play on the right for a bit okay so you're going to play here and so it means that you come out with a lot of these players who are sort of multifaceted but not quite at the level in any of them yet you see a lot of young players do this and sometimes they sort of pick the sort of arm of the skill tree they want to max and they end up doing that and do very well and there are lots of players you know for example like a Bakayo Saka was one who we saw a couple of seasons ago broke through in the team as a left back hasn't played there for Arsenal for ages to the point where they've bought Nuno Tavares as a backup left back. Not because he's not a good player, but that's not the the path that he's gone for. Conor Gallagher is really interesting because so far anyway, he's shown himself to be massively competent in all of the areas he's tried his hands. He's been great at carrying the ball forwards as a box-to-box midfielder. He's been great in a sort of more subdued role at the base of midfield when he's had to fill in for like an injured Milivojevic. And he's done really well surging forwards as the most advanced player in a midfield three when they've more recently been playing with Kuyate and Will Hughes uh, alongside him. So the fact that he can do all of these things, normally you see him and you would sort of go, okay, well, he can play all these roles competently. That's the one that he's best at. I still can't really tell what his best role is. Not because he's sort of equally average, but because he's actually quite good at all of them. Yeah, well, uh, you might not be surprised to know that uh, I'm sure you've come across the phrase jack of all trades, master of none. But the full phrase I actually came across uh, the other day is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of none. And in no nowhere is that truer than someone like Conor Gallagher because he really does seem to have it all and he always seems to be a bit of a master of all. Um, the main thing is just that he is constantly moving and harrying and pressing and working for the team. And I think that Patrick Vieira must have such confidence to put him in the lineup week in, week out, literally anywhere, because he knows that he is going to get a, a more determined performance than anyone else on the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have both obviously rate him. I think anyone who's watched more than 15 minutes of Premier League football this season will understand why we've gone for that that decision. Just to to look at him from a different angle, obviously he's had a really, really good record, six goals and five assists. 
as we've just mentioned, his game goes beyond just the scoring and assisting. The first question for him now as a player, and a question I want to sort of throw towards you, he's really kicked on this season. Is his development going to continue as well back at his parent club, Chelsea? Or do you think he's going to be starting to think maybe he'll be better off with consistent minutes elsewhere than going back to Chelsea, where if Conor Gallagher goes back to Chelsea at the end of the season, does he go straight into the eleven? Maybe, but it's not a guarantee. So is he maybe better off? You know, I mean, you know, we look at, for example, and he's a much older player, so a little bit different, but Jesse Lingard had a real lease of life elsewhere at West Ham and now has come back to United and it's like it never happened. Do you think Conor Gallagher is maybe going to look at something like that and go, do I want to go back to Chelsea or actually do I want to continue being the main man which kind of is a palace and continue to kick on and maybe when I'm 25 go back to Chelsea as a starter yeah I mean Jesse Lingard's a great example I'm inclined to to say that Thomas Tuchel is a better manager than than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer but I think that Jesse Lingard is just one example of so many players that have gone out on loan come back and just not performed the same way I mean someone like Romelu Lukaku is a great example of, of what you've just said who went away and has come back um, in more of his prime years to, to play for his old club. I think that it really all depends on how the rest of the season goes for him. If he can maintain this for a whole season and he can post up these numbers, I think he kind of almost has to bully his way into contention at Chelsea. Because, uh, I mean, the way he's been playing so far, he's making himself literally unignorable. And if you can maintain that for a whole year, then I, I really think the sky's the limit for this lad. Um, and, and they will do almost anything to, to keep him. Um, it's tricky because there are no there are no easy people, apart from maybe Ruben Loftus-Cheek, that you could just slot out. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would think someone like Jorginho could go um, because Kovacic and Kante are so impressive. Um, but I, I, think, I think there's definitely, not just because of... of the fact that he's so good at so many things, Gallagher, but also Chelsea's system, you know, Mount can play in an attacking midfielder role. He can play in a, in like a slightly freer, um, you know, in inverted winger, inward winger role as well. And I think that Gallagher could do that too. I think Gallagher and Mount competing in, in Chelsea's midfield together would be fearsome for any side. Yeah, it absolutely would. Um, so yeah, definitely an interesting player. I, I'll be interested to see what happens to his career. I hope for his sake that if he does go back to Chelsea, he just doesn't become another footnote player. I, I hope he does the Tino Levermento and not the Ruben loftus cheek Yeah, I agree with you. He just seems like such a good, good lad as well, doesn't he? See, yeah, see, it seems I'm just, you know, as the, the England fan in me, it's like I want to see him develop as best as possible. I mean, the the to me, he does seem like someone like Rhys James, you know, did incredibly well on loan, did did really well in every position asked of him, even though they a lot of them were quite disparate. Um, I mean, Rhys James did an absolute job in midfield for Wigan when he was on loan, um, not just at right back. Um, so, and he now is in um, the starting eleven, and he is in the contention for England. And I think Gallagher is that good. Gallagher, I think, yeah. you know, he's already pushing and knocking on the door of England starts and getting into the England squad, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the season he's almost not a nailed-in starter, but a nailed-in squad member. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if that's that's good enough, being a nailed-in squad member. But let's not dilly that too long on, on Mr. Conor Gallagher. Let's look at forwards, and, and I want you to go first here, because I've again got two that I'm still sort of you know debating with myself mentally, and I want to see if you've gone for one of these, and if you have, I'll go for the other. Uh, so okay, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've, you've got two here because I'm I was on the uh, on the verge of making a very rogue decision just to to try and avoid you, <laughs> um, uh, and go for someone like I don't know Emmanuel Dennis wouldn't be a bad shout, but I to me I think just because West Ham are playing so well, um, and Mikel Antonio has continued his great form, seven goals and five assists, and I think he's a big part of of. Um, West Ham's ability to maintain pressure on teams, stay in the game, be physical. Um, I've gone for him as my as my striker. I think what I would say though is that attacker was a little harder for me than the other positions. It's it's been a less impactful position this season uh, from a for a lot of clubs. A, a lot of clubs have been relying from for goals, a lot relying. 
for goals from midfield or defence um, rather than, you know, out-and-out strikers. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I can see why. I have st- got two that you, neither of whom you've mentioned. Well, one of them you sort of mentioned disparagingly, who, in, to spite you, I will now go for, uh, and that's <laughs> Emmanuel Dennis. Um, I mean, yeah, I mentioned him because he's, he's a great player. Um, but I think yeah, go on. he has been the forward of the of the midseason. Um, I think from the first week when Watford beat Aston Villa, we talked about him, and you sort of mentioned how naturally settled into the Premier League. He does it like he's right at home. He's played 16 games in the league this season. He's got eight goals and five assists. That's a pretty respectable record, full stop. But when you take into account that he's new to the league, he's 24 years old, and he's playing for a side that looks to be one of the weakest in the league, and were it not for Emmanuel Dennis, I imagine would be struggling in the relegation spots, it just starts to paint the picture of a really talented player. Um, And he's someone that, you know, I was watching, maybe this is sort of recency bias, but I was watching Watford play West Ham yesterday, and... Watford lost 4-1. They were getting completely dominated and played off the park. But even then, Emmanuel Dennis was constantly causing a ruckus. He was constantly getting forwards. He scored one, nearly scored a second as well. He's always causing problems for defenders. He's fast. He's physical. He's able to get off good shots and and just close down angles. So I I think it's for the mid-season. It'll be interesting to see how a season finishes up because sometimes it's just a flash in the pan. And he has had hot streaks, as all strikers do, really. Um... But yeah, I think, I think I'm going to go for him so far because I've been really impressed with how well he's done for a Watford side that has not given him a lot to work with at times. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been great. Also, he's been great from the start. You know, day one, he was he was looking impressive and we kind of talked about him as like, wow, he looks pretty good. Looks like a bit of a, you know, a player that we might see some good things from and he's done that every week. Um, as you say, he's just a very talented player. Um, he seems to really suit this Watford side and Watford seem to really benefit from having him lead their line. Um, eight goals, five assists. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you that I just thought it was, uh, you know, it's just like a more of a classically like hipster shout to pick someone like a Watford um, player as your attacking player of the season, despite the fact that, you know, they're like 17th in the table. Hey man, he plays for Watford and, and they might be sending the table. He's fourth top scorer so far this season. So if you ignore, and if you ignore Salah, as we've agreed in this Salah as well, he's third top scorer. Well, Cam, why don't you just put on your hipster hat and glasses and just pick Emile Smith-Rowe like I know you want to. <laughs> That's my forward and, and goalkeeper. <laughs> uh, well, I think that is probably a good who place was your, to end Who it. was your second uh, attacker that you had in mind? Uh, my second attacker was the um, was the top scorer in the Salah as well, Diogo Jota. Diogo um, Jota, yeah, fair. I he, mean... He's been really good. The, the thing that held me back, he, he's one of those guys who, he's kind of like what I think Chelsea fans think Timo Werner is, where he gets into loads of really, really good positions and occasionally misses the odd sitter, but makes up for it by scoring a lot of the, like, more chance than he misses. But at least once a game, when you watch Liverpool play, you'll see Diogo Jota just absolutely miss, like, a goal. They're not always sitters, but, like, a a goal that should be scored. And you're just like, oh, mate. And unlike Werner, who never scores them, Jota will sort of miss the one and then score two. So it kind of makes up for it. But the missing one is what just held me back from from naming him over Emmanuel Dennis. That and spite. Reasonable. Very reasonable. I think you're right, though, that that probably wraps things up for us this week. Um, it's going to be a, a fun rest of December, start of January. And then, yeah, we're on to the transfer window and, and all of the, the joy therein. Um, the until joys then, though, and miseries therein. <laughs> exactly. Um, until then, though, Cam, thanks very much. Cheers, Rupert. And thank you, everyone at home, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.